Take your Bibles and turn with me to the very end of Luke chapter 4. The end of Luke chapter 4 as we will finish this chapter today. Our text is Luke 4 verses 42 through 44. Just a short passage today. Now for context, I'm going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's bow our heads and pray over this time. Lord, we come before you, praying, Lord, that you would clear away other distractions in our thoughts, other concerns that might steal our attention in these moments, that you would give us, Lord, by your Spirit, clarity of mind and heart, so that as we study your text, as we study, Lord, what delights the heart of our Savior that we might be conformed to Him, Lord, even as we behold Him. Our prayer, Lord, is for You to be magnified as all in all, in us, through us, by us. Speak now, Lord, for Your people are listening. In Jesus' name, Amen. If I were to ask you this morning, what truly gives you delight, how would you answer? As I thought about my answer to that question, I I think it's been different things at different times of my life. When I was three years old, the thing that delighted me above all else was ice cream. As a nine-year-old, it was saving up my allowance and finally being able to purchase a new transformer. That kind of dates me. As a 16-year-old, I delighted to be able to see a young woman named Lisa Hubbard. As an 18-year-old and a brand-new Christian, I delighted in going to church. At 24 years old, I delighted in getting married to the former Lisa Hubbard. Ever since I turned 28 and Grace was born, I have delighted in my children. Every day since my call to ministry, I've delighted in pastoring and preaching. And pretty much since age three, I still delight in ice cream. But what delights you? What brings delight, gladness to your heart? More importantly, what delights the heart of our God? Scripture gives us ample answers. God delights in Himself and in His righteous works. Psalm 104 verse 31 says, Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in all His works. 
God also delights, of course, in the person and the work of His Son. We saw just a few weeks ago as we exposited Luke 4, how at the day of His baptism, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven to say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God has pleasure and delight in His creation. On the days of creation, He looked at all that He had made and He said that it was good. God delights in His fame in all the earth and He delights in the election of His people to salvation. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says that in love He predestined us to adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. God also delights in the obedience of His people and in doing good to all who hope in Him. Jeremiah 9.24 says, But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. There's so many things that delight the heart of God. And likewise, when we turn to the Gospels, we see that there are so many things that delight the heart of Jesus. Two of the specific things that bring joy and pleasure to His heart are in these three verses that we're looking at this morning. And we have the privilege of exploring these two things with the specific goal of understanding and sharing in His delight in these things. You see, in salvation, we are brought into union with Jesus Christ through His Spirit, and therefore we look to Him, we love Him, we rejoice in Him, and we seek to be reflections of Him in all that we are and do. To summarize it more succinctly, our love for Christ is manifested in finding our greatest joy in what brings Him pleasure. Our love for Christ is manifested in finding our greatest joy in what brings Him pleasure. And we see two of those things given very clearly to us in the text today. The first thing we see in this passage, beginning at the start of verse 42, is the delight of Christ in communion with His Father. The delight of Christ in communion with With his father. The first part of verse 42 there says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Now, as we come to this first sentence of 42, we want to recognize that the Gospels show us that Christ had a rhythm of retreating from the world and then entering into the world. There were times, in other words, when Jesus gave himself to ministry and to the crowds, even to the point of personal exhaustion, and times when he withdrew to solitary places to commune with the Father. Now, I know this first first sentence of verse 42, it doesn't tell us that Jesus departed and went into a desolate place to pray. But if we look at the wider testimony of the Gospels, any time Jesus departed to be alone in this way, any time it is mentioned that he went to a desolate place or a place of solitude, it was for the purpose of communing with his heavenly Father. He perfectly protected the balance of the two priorities of communion with the Lord and ministry to the public. 
We see here and in numerous other places that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness or to the desolate place or to the mountaintop for these times of solitude. This was his sacred space where he left behind the noise and the ministry demands and the needy in order to commune with his Father, in order to give his undivided attention to the personal means of grace. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 tells us that after his fame spread everywhere and the whole city gathered together at the door, that Jesus took time to slip away the following morning to spend time with the Father. Verse 35 says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Matthew, 11, Matthew 14, 13, excuse me, after the death of John the Baptist, it says that Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to, to a desolate place by himself. Now that time the crowds did follow after him, and he didn't despise them for that. He put his time of personal communion on hold in order to have compassion upon them and heal their sick. But then after feeding over 5,000 of them, Matthew 14, 23 tells us that after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. We have verse 42 here in Luke 4 telling us that after a busy night of teaching and healing and casting out demons, he left early the next morning to go to a desolate place. And in the next chapter, in Luke 5, verses 15 through 16, we're told, But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And in the next chapter, Luke 6, 12, it says that he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And so Jesus struck a balance between giving all of himself to the ministry of the gospel and the needs of his people and giving all of himself to times of solitude where he would prioritize prayer and fasting and time meditating on scriptures as the means of personal communion with his father. There are times when we see him delaying his personal habits to meet the immediate needs of his people, but he always protected this balance of ministry and solitude. And he taught his disciples to do the same. In Mark chapter 6, verses 31 and 32, he said to his disciples after they had returned from a busy time of ministry, he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And brothers and sisters, we want to understand that even though Jesus did not have his own personal copy of the Bible the way that we do today, we want to be very clear that Scripture was central and essential to both his ministry and his times of communion with the Father. Think of what we have seen just in this chapter of Luke. At the very outset of his public ministry, Jesus retreated into the wilderness as he faced the direct temptations of Satan. And as he faced those temptations, he set his heart on what was written in Scripture. When he returned from the wilderness, he went to Nazareth on the Sabbath day, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah, and he announced, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Over and over again, over and over again, Jesus cited what was written in the Word of God throughout his ministry. He cleared the temple of money changers on the grounds of what was written in Isaiah 56, 7. He rebuked the proud by quoting scripture in Mark 7, 6. 
At every step of his path to Calvary, he knew and he taught his disciples that everything that was about to happen would happen in accordance with what was written. Luke 18.31, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of God, Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And so Jesus lived by what was written. God's Word was central in His life and therefore central to His times of communion with the Father. And His actions of going away into solitary places to pray and fast and meditate on the Word, they were not ends in and of themselves. It was through these means that Jesus pursued intimacy with His Father. It was through these means that Jesus experienced the joy and delight of knowing and drawing near to his greatest love. You have to remember that in, in heaven, the, the three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, had this perfect fellowship. And now Jesus in the incarnation, as God made incarnate, he continued this priority of intimacy with the Godhead. Only now in his humanity as the perfect God-man, he had to be intentional in going aside, in making the time, in being disciplined to seek his Father in prayer and fasting and meditation in the Word. Now as you hear me say all that, brothers and sisters, I know many of you are just waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? You've been listening to me anticipating the inevitable application. All right, Pastor Sean, this is where... You're going to tell me that I need to be more faithful in having a quiet time. And yes, I, I would encourage you towards that. Not as a law, because Scripture nowhere gives us a law that says you are to wake up and do this this way every day for the rest of your Christian life. And yet, in Christ, we do have our Savior Himself setting an example for us of what it means to go aside to commune with His Heavenly Father. And so, yes, I would encourage you towards that, but I would also enlarge your perspective of that with this one key thought. You see, so many of us struggle to have good times of communion with the Lord through His means of grace. So many of us struggle to have a right time in the Word and a right time in prayer that is truly spiritually nourishing. We struggle with that because we don't understand it rightly. And so this is what I would have us glean from this verse this morning, brothers and sisters. By virtue of our union with Christ, we do not have to manufacture a desire for communion with God. We simply have to protect and nurture the desire we're given. Let me say that again. By virtue of our union with Christ, we do not have to manufacture a desire for communion with God. We simply have to protect and nurture the desire we're given. You see, when we look at the life and the priorities of Jesus, we see his delight in taking time to break away from the crowds, to get away from his disciples, to go and spend time with his Father. He shows us by his example how personal communion with God is to be a regular practice in our spiritual lives. And in Christ, we are made new. We become new creatures with new hearts and therefore new desires. New desires that are born out of our union with Him. 
By virtue of our new identity, it is now our natural state to love what Jesus loves. And so, as a Christian, when we hear this discussion of quiet times and we're told that we need to be in the Word and in prayer every day, it's not as if we have to muster up out of nowhere a desire to commune with God. If we are in Him, we already desire it. But we do have to be intentional in protecting and nurturing that desire. Why? Because as much as our spirit loves to go aside for time with the Lord, our flesh equally desires to indulge in worldly distraction. And we know that too well, don't we? You know, you've heard me talk about it before. It's a spiritual battle, right? We wake up in the morning with the best of intentions. We've allowed ourselves enough time. We go to pick up our Bible. We go to read some of His Word. We go to have a magnificent prayer time. And immediately, even though we've gotten a good night's rest, immediately we're fighting the temptation to go back to sleep. Whereas if we had taken that same time to wake up and perhaps turn on our cell phone and perhaps scrolling through the digital universe and checking our Facebook feed, we seem wide awake for that. In one, our flesh is going to fight us because our flesh wants to do everything to distract us from the pursuit of communion with God. In the other, our flesh is going to encourage us because our flesh would much rather drink from the well of worldliness than drink from the well of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, what we need to understand again is it's not, it's not as if we have to muster up this desire by virtue of being one with Christ. We already share this desire. What we have to do is protect it. It's as if someone wants to give you an, an apple tree. They give you a fully mature apple tree. They have it delivered to your house. It has luscious red apples. You don't have to plant it or grow it or wait all those years for it to begin bearing fruit. It's bearing delicious, beautiful fruit right now. However, if you do not plant that tree in good soil and water it and fertilize it and prune it, it will cease to grow and instead it will die. Understand similarly that Christ gives you the desire for communion with God, but just like Him, you have to make the choice to discipline yourself and go and do it. And that's the hard part, isn't it? But understand that Christ faced the hardship of that as well, right? I mean, He had His times with the Lord regularly interrupted as the crowds followed Him, even as they did on this very morning of our text. I'm sure on this morning, after a full night of ministry, after a full night of healing and laying hands on everyone who came, I'm sure Jesus would have loved to wake up and go down to breakfast and have some of that magnificent biscuits and gravy that Peter's mother-in-law made. But instead, he departed to a desolate place where he could pray. He could have stayed and taught his disciples about how manna in the wilderness tasted even better than Peter's mother-in-law's biscuits. But clearly, there were times where personal communion with God took precedence even over teaching and fellowship. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ shows us the way. He gives us the heartfelt desire to commune with the Father 
And he even supplies the grace and strength we need to make the right choice and to follow through on it. One of the reasons that so many of us struggle in this area of our lives is because we've been relying on our own frail strength, thinking that we have to muster up the desire for something that's not there. And that's simply not the case. We need to see this from Christ's perspective and understand His heart and know that as our heart is now intertwined with His, as we are one with the Savior, we naturally desire the same things He desires. What we do then at that point is then engage in the battle against our flesh. We carve out those times. We discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We look to Christ. We behold Him. We understand the grace of our Savior and how, as 1 Peter has told us, He has given us everything we need for godliness. We look to Him and we draw upon Him and we follow Him because Christ gives everything we need to us. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 reminds us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Dear child of God, you are not alone. Dear child of Christ, you have the very heart of the Savior. That time of communion that you have struggled with, that time of communion that you have struggled to protect, I know it is hard. I know there are demands with children, there are demands with work, there are demands with church, there are demands with all sorts of other activities. Not to mention the times where you just so desperately need to, to relax and take a breather. I understand the busyness of this world in which we live all too well. Even as a pastor, I understand the struggle it sometimes is to protect the preciousness of our communion with the Savior. And yet I would call to you as I've called to myself in those moments, look to Christ. Know that what He gives, the strength and the grace and the mercy and the blessings that He gives are far greater are far more inexhaustible than anything this world would try to distract you from, distract you with. What the world would distract you with is profitless to your soul. What Jesus would give you freely as you seek Him is ultimately profitable for the glory of His name and all the good of your own soul. Delight in the communion with delight in communion with the Father as Christ did. The second thing we see here in this text is the delight of Christ in going forth with the gospel. Next, we see the delight of Christ in going forth with the gospel. Pick up in the second half of verse 42 there. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Again, as it happened many other times when Jesus was seeking to be alone at some point, he was found out. They are the ones who had been taught by him and healed by him and released from demonic oppression by him the night before. And these people, they didn't want him to go anywhere else. 
They knew that previously he had been traveling around the region, visiting different towns and synagogues to heal and to preach. But now they were quite certain that he needed to remain in Capernaum at their personal disposal. Their desire was not that much unlike Peter's response later on down the road on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter was so awestruck by seeing the glorified Christ accompanied by Moses and Elijah that Peter wanted to set up residence on the mountain. Let's erect tents and let's stay here. That's what the people were thinking that day. Now, it is true that we don't know the motives of everyone in the crowd that morning who sought out Jesus. Some might have come to him just wanting to have more teaching. Some might have come who had yet to be healed of their sicknesses and infirmities. They might have arrived early that morning. Some might have wanted to control Jesus. But what is clear is that they did not want him to leave, which means that they could see no greater priority beyond themselves. We see in them a picture of what remains one of the great struggles of the Christian life, don't we? We're excited and thankful for all the benefits of salvation that we receive through Jesus. We have been saved by His wondrous grace. We know the blessed assurance of His indwelling Spirit. We have the comfort and instruction of His Word. And we're overjoyed in our fellowship with His people. But we're not very good at sharing Him, are we? We know the importance of having Christ, but we tend to want to keep Him to ourselves. Jesus' response to the crowd continues to direct us in how to overcome this struggle in our flesh. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. You see, the language he uses here communicates a divine compulsion and a sovereign purpose. Jesus had had come to fulfill the covenant of redemption, the covenant that was established between he and his father in eternity past. He could do no other than go to all of Israel to preach the good news of his kingdom. We hear the same sense of compulsion from Jesus in John 10, 16, where Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is even there telling us that he was sovereignly bound, that he was necessarily compelled to bring his sheep in from other folds, to redeem his chosen people from among every other tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. This was his purpose then, and it remains, brothers and sisters, his purpose even now. What delights the heart of Christ, in other words, has not changed. Just as Christ delights in communion with his Father, he also delights in the gospel going forth. And once Christ returned to the Father, that divine compulsion continued on in Christ's followers. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And the Apostle Peter told all of us as believers in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
Brothers and sisters, it's, it's not merely our duty to share the gospel. It's our delight to share Christ because once again, we are one with him. We share his same heart. What I said in my first point applies just as well here in the second point. We don't have to manufacture a personal desire to share Jesus with people. We simply have to protect and nurture the desire that we're given by virtue of our union with Him. When we look at the life and priorities of Jesus, we see His delight in going from town to town, teaching and loving and healing and forgiving and calling people to believe. This is what His purpose was. This was His joy. He shows us by His example again how important it is for us to go. Even more, we share his compulsion to go because we're new creatures with new hearts and new desires born out of our union with him. We don't have to muster up some desire that just isn't within us. But we do have to actively nurture and cultivate this desire so that it's not quenched by the desires of our flesh. Because you know as well as I do how our flesh whispers in our ear. We feel that inclination. We feel maybe this is an opportunity to start a gospel conversation. Maybe this is an opportunity to talk about Christ. And immediately our flesh rises up telling us everything that's a shortcoming in us. Oh, what if they ask a question that you don't know how to answer? What if you start a conversation that you don't know how to finish? What if they get angry with you? What if this affects your relationship with them? What if they report you to HR that you were doing this in the break room? And our flesh begins to actively campaign to quench our spirit. The fact of the matter is, and I think most of you would agree with me in this, the factor of the matter is, is that when most of us were saved, we had an immediate burden and delight to tell our unsaved family members and acquaintances about Jesus, didn't we? I mean, even my, my wife, Lisa, she shared the story. She came to Christ when she was seven years old. She had faithful parents that led her to Christ. And the day after, she, she trusted in Christ with her mother there at her dining room table. The next day, she made sure she had her Bible in her backpack as she was getting on the school bus. And she told her mom, as a seven-year-old, Mom, I'm going to have a Bible study for my unsaved friends at, at school today. You might have to come and pick me up after school. I think if most of us reflect back on our own lives, we experience that same thing. I know I came to Christ when I was 18 years old, and one of the immediate fruits of that salvation experience was that unction, that desire that others would know. And I remember talking to to, to my family members who were unsaved about Christ, and I remember going and talking to my friends and telling them what had happened to me and asking them if they ever thought about where they stood in relationship to the Lord. Many of us in this room experienced that. But then something happened, didn't it? Quite ironically, gaining maturity in Christ served to diminish that desire in many of us. Didn't it? Are we not missing something significant in our sanctification 
if greater knowledge of Christ results in a diminished desire to share Him? Are we not missing something significant in our sanctification if greater knowledge of Christ results in a diminished desire to share Him? Has the church become like the crowd in our passage? So enamored with the blessings of the Savior, but wanting only to keep Him to ourselves? Again, my goal in in bringing us to such critical questions is never to motivate us to guilt, brothers and sisters, because guilt is never to be the motive for obedience. But it is good for us to ask questions, to weigh our hearts once in a while, isn't it? To come before the Savior and and ask ourselves, why is this the case? Why is it the longer I've been a believer, the less I seem to share my faith? Why? And the answer for what we do about it is really the answer for everything, isn't it? We need to look again to Christ. We need to look to Christ. Even, we, we need to even understand that in these three verses that we look at this morning, these th- two things are not put together by accident. And this is where I would draw some great points of application for us as we talk about being the people both in our communion with Christ and in our personal evangelism with, uh, of Christ. These two things are brought together into this text for a reason. And so I would give us these applications. First of all, Jesus' communion with the Father is where his humanity was continually shaped and prepared and strengthened to do his Father's will. As it says in Hebrews 5.8, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned and so must we. And the means of our growth in him is the means that grace himself employed in meeting with the Father. It's scripture, prayer, meditation, solitude. If you're a true child of God, the desire for this communion with their Lord already abides within you. Maybe the weeds of busyness and worldliness have grown over it. Maybe there's a fog of apathy that you're struggling to find your way through. Maybe there's a shadow of guilt that makes you feel unworthy to come into his presence. But know this, child, Christ knows your innermost thoughts and struggles, and he has done everything necessary to cleanse you and to make you welcome before the throne of holiness. You can always come before Him and know His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy, His strength. Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you realize there's an area of your life, it's not where it should be in your Christian walk. Run to the Savior and commune with Him. And that's my second point. In your communion with Christ, pray for Him to give you the desires of your heart. Pray for him to give you the desires of your heart. Again, Psalm 37, 4 through 5 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. When we study the Gospels, we are struck at every turn of the page by the heart and the actions of Christ our Savior. 
He was compassionate with the needy. He was patient with those slow to understand. He was full of grace for those who realized they were steeped in sin. He has told us over and over again to come to him when we were in need, come to him when we need comfort, and that he will always receive us. He will always hear us. He will always help us because we are his own. And so if there are areas of your Christian life where you see that your desires do not match those of your Savior, the invitation of Christ is to come and pray to Him about those things. Pray about those things specifically. Be able to say, Lord, I, I, I struggle to, to want to spend time with You. Lord, Give me new desires of my heart. Help me to say no to the things of the world and to want what you want. Lord, I, I struggle even to, to want to talk to my coworkers, my classmates about Jesus. Father God, I, I struggle with potentially being rejected by them. I struggle with knowing what to say, but you, Lord, you know perfectly what to say. You, Lord, were rejected so that I would not be rejected before the throne of God. So, Lord, please help me to have this conversation with this person. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray specifically for opportunities to seek Him, opportunities to share the gospel. Pray specifically for the salvation of people close to you. And then thirdly, and my final word to you this morning, understand the importance of self-control. Understand the importance of self-control. Love for Christ, looking to Christ, seeking Christ does not give us leave to rest on our spiritual laurels. No, brothers and sisters, love for Christ is the holy engine of our sanctification. Love for Christ is the very drivetrain of our obedience. And that drivetrain must be engaged for us to grow in the Christian life. Self-control or self-discipline some of those things are some of those uses are synonymous in the New Testament. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit's work in us. It's even listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And it's essential for our growth into holiness. Remember that the goal of the Christian life is to be ever more growing into his likeness, more distant from the world, and more prepared and hungry for the glories of heaven. And so there comes a point where we just have to do it, remembering that Christ gives us the desire for it. Christ puts at our disposal his strength to do it. Christ forgives us where we fall short, and he calls us to follow him in obedience. Christ has done everything necessary as the one who has gone before us. Brothers and sisters, we just got to get up and follow Look to Christ, love Him, and follow Him. Seek to have the heart of Christ. Pray to have the heart of Christ. And you will yet see the glory of how your life is changed to be a reflection of His own. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who has given himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let us be a people who renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, who live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, looking to and waiting for the blessed appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And let us, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the privilege of coming to his table. Once again, the if there's something we see again and again, even in the example given us in the Old Testament, even when we see God, God appear in His thunderous presence of lightning and clouds and, and, and fire on Mount Sinai, we see God making an opportunity for the elders of Israel to come up and eat with Him on His holy mountain, demonstrating the fact that by His covenant, He has made sinful men welcome in His presence. While Jesus Christ is the guarantor of the new covenant, He has guaranteed, He has made us welcome, He has secured our ability to come into God's presence, to know peace with a God with whom we were previously at war, Every time we partake of these elements, it is a celebration of what Christ has done in giving His body and His blood as the sacrifice for our sin so that we could be reconciled to God. And so, if you are a believer in Christ present today, we bid you come to this table and know the joys of Christ. If you are here today and you are not in Christ, you have not trusted in Him as your Savior and Lord, We ask you to honor the Lord by allowing these elements to pass by. Paul had to warn the Corinthians that there were some who had died because they had partaken of the Lord's Supper inappropriately, and they brought a curse upon themselves. But if you... If you, are, if you see yourself in what it says at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says there at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. If that describes you, then come to the table this morning. If you have believed on Christ and been baptized and are under the ministry of a biblical church, come to the table. And be reminded and refreshed by this ordinance that Christ has given for the good of his body, the church.